hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that thinks Harry Kane should go to Norman. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I've spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. And today, among other things, we're going to be talking about change. Change to formats of competitions, change to rules of football, changes of clubs for some players, and the first ever female manager of an English Football League side. Yeah, so one of the big changes we're going to start with is a change that people may uh, remember, but one that we'll do just a quick recap on before we talk about the new information that's come out. Uh, That's the Champions League format changes coming in for the 24-25 season, so not this coming one, uh, but the one after that, of course. Um, An extension from 32 teams to 36, um, and also a change to the group stages from four groups of eight, where the top two teams go through, to sort of a big 36-team style league where the each match each team plays eight matches instead of six and they're sort of determined algorithmically and the top 24 teams go through to the next round the bottom 12 drop out beyond that the top eight teams go directly through to the following round and the bottom uh, 16 teams have to play an additional round before they too go through to the round of 16 so for the bottom 16 uh, teams of that top 24 if I'm explaining that in a way that makes any sense uh, they have to play an additional game whereas those top eight almost skip around if that makes it more easy to understand what we've learned now has happened is that in addition to this those top eight teams will be seeded so if you're a tennis fan You'll be familiar with this system, but what effectively it means is that those top eight teams will have their path to the final predetermined, and you'll know as soon as you finish, whether you're at the top of that 36-team table or if you're eighth, what your path is going to be to the final, assuming you win all of your games. This has been done in a way such that, for example, the team that finishes first and the team that finishes second in that 36-team table will not be able to meet again until the final. Um, so it's interesting there. I mean, I want to sort of throw that to you in a second to hear your thoughts on that change. The other thing that's changed is in this knockout round, it used to be the case that in the initial knockout rounds, you couldn't play someone from your own country, from your own league. Um, but now you can immediately in, the, in those knockout rounds. I guess I want to throw it to you mm. first. We've already talked at length in a, in a, a recent episode, a Swiss-style Champions League, I believe it's called, so easy to find for anyone who needs a, a longer recap than that. But your thoughts on this seeding idea of... You know, you know, depending on where you finish in the group stages, it, it's sort of, it, you know your route to the final and, and it could potentially lead to, if you do really well, it could sort of weight how well you do, make the group stages even more important. Well, what do you think? Is it a good thing overall, a bad thing, more or less the same? My instinct is that I think it's a bad thing because I like the randomness of competitions. On the other hand, and, and I don't like why I think it's being done, which is that, I'm sure big clubs will have just pushed UEFA and been like, well, if if we can't do our, you know, if we can't do our Super League, then you're going to have to make things a little bit better for us. Um, and I think that's evident in what has been said about it. I think um, who was I think it was Alexander Cheferin who said like, there's a quote of his who says like, the dream to participate will remain, will remain for all clubs. So I think it's quite clear that you know he's trying to basically make it work for for big clubs. Um, more than anyone I don't mind it in the sense that we'll probably always have quite good finals um it's but then I like the the random cup runs of teams like AC Milan um so I'm a little bit torn I think broadly 
the point I would make is that I don't really feel like the Champions League needs fixing. I like it. Um, so all of these changes I'm not super chuffed about. It, it's interesting, isn't it? Because on the one hand, I agree with you, that there's two sides. So on the one hand, I think especially sort of in England where we've got the FA Cup and we've all been sort of from a young age of watching football, uh, you know, sold on this magic of the cup idea. We, we do like it and it definitely is exciting when you see sort of a really unexpected team do well. That's not to say that that can't still happen. The second seeded team could play the seventh seeded team or whoever it is in the system and, and that seventh seeded team could win and meet the eighth seeded team in the final. It could still happen. It's just a little bit less likely. I suppose... I mean, maybe I'm saying this from a position of the last few, I think the last four Champions League finals have all been 1-0. They've all been quite bad. So as much as I go, well, it's, you know, it's nice to see an Inter Milan play a Man City every now and again. Like, look at them, you know, not doing so hot in the league, but they've managed to make it to the final. It's not led to a great final. And similarly, sort of like your Spurs' versus Liverpool's wasn't a particularly great final. Bayern Munich and PSG wasn't a great final for different reasons. Two obviously great teams at the peak of their powers. But Chelsea and City being the other one. Chelsea not a great team that year and made it through to the final. So... On the strength of the last four Champions League finals, none of which I enjoyed, there's an argument for this from the purely football fan perspective, even though I don't think that's the way that that decision has been made. Yeah, that's fair. It has definitely been uh, a few unexciting years. Um, All of those finals that you were just listing off there, in my head I was just going, yeah, dead, dead, dead final. Not good good games, were they? No, no, poor games, not fun games. Um, I think I saw... I was watching something where they were classing finals and one of the categories was was on my phone throughout. And that's at least a couple of those. And that's that's coming from from quite a large football fan. Yeah, I, I mean, th- that's the thing. Is like, I, I absolutely defend the idea that there's a, you know, a great 1-0 in football. I just don't think any of these have been particularly good 1-0s. And when you compare like this season's Champions League to... I mean, this this had some jeopardy. There was sort of those Lukaku misses, but maybe I'm only remembering those because it happened most recently. Um, but when you compare that, for example, to the World Cup final, which was just an absolute goal festival. And yeah, it wasn't a goal festival for the entire game, but then it came alive and there were goals flying all over the place. And I mean, that is that that is what people think about as one of the greatest football matches of all time. And again, maybe that's recency bias, but it does help. It does help when there's a lot of goals to remember and a lot of, a lot of sort of switching around of who's ahead. Sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely true. Um, well, look, I think I think you make a good point that the, the last few finals have been pretty dead. I don't know if this will necessarily fix it. Some of those finals were with big clubs. Some of them weren't. Um, I think, I guess we'll see. It's out of our hands. It's happening. Um, confirmed. So, you know, uh, might well be that this is a change for the better. And hopefully if it's not, then they'll make the change back. But I, I'm, I'm saying that with a pinch of salt. Well, I think, uh, I can't remember because, you know, so maybe I need to listen to the Swiss style Champions League, but I can't remember the exact uh, length, but because it's all tied up with broadcast, I mean, the whole reason this has been expanded from 32 to 36 and six games to eight games for each team is more games equals more ads equals more money for, for the broadcast in UEFA. Sure. I, I don't more know exactly sales. the length that it's tied into, sales. but t- ticket sales as well. But I think that's rel- just a relatively small part of the pie compared to, to ad money, sure, for example. Sure. But, um, yeah, I don't know how long it's changed in, but if it's if it's disastrous the first year and there happens to be all sorts of sort of really bad things going on, um, maybe they will go. Oh god, okay. In four or five years, when the cycle is up, uh, let's change it again. I, I think it might be much longer than that, though. For some reason, I've got the number ten in my mind, but I, I don't know if that's correct. So don't <laughs> don't quote me on that. As in, how many how many game how many years the broadcast cycle is but that could be completely wrong that's just a number that's in my head for some reason so i don't know if i'm having like a it's at the recesses of my mind moment or i'm just i just i'm thinking about the number 10 (laughs) 
I'm not sure. I know that. Um, I know that. I think this format has actually been quite a few years in the making. So I guess that would probably extend it beyond just one season. I think it would have to go really, really wrong for them to only do it for one season. Um, well, well, well I, don't, I don't think they can. I don't think whatever happens, they can do it for one season because it's locked into a bunch of the, the broadcasting contracts and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, this is the new reality. Uh, we've got one more year of, of old regular broadcasting and uh, who are we but people who intend to enjoy it? It's kind of funny because we're a bit too young for this, as are a lot of people uh, that listen to this because it happened ages and ages ago. But it's like the old, the old, old Champions League or European Cup format where it was only the champions that qualified. And I would imagine, I haven't sort of looked up any of the headlines from them, but I'd imagine there was quite a similar fan sentiment then of people going, how is it the champions or the European Cup if, you know, it's not just champions qualifying, it's any old team. Um, But then there's more Champions League teams now, and that's always really exciting for, you know, it's sort of an extra layer of narrative for the regular league season because you're like, oh, top four, it's not just the team that wins it, gets all the glory. There's there's opportunities, you know, finishing second or third or fourth has its own merit. And indeed now with the Europa League and the Europa Conference League, all the way down to seventh in some leagues. Sure. I mean, it's only four new teams. Um, so it is really about the more games played as much as it is about new teams coming in. But yeah, it... it It'll be fun, and I'm I'm broadly glad to see. I think like any um, competition, we often talk about. Um, it'll be nice to see more teams getting a go. It'll be nice to see the occasional Ferenc Varos having a, having a dig at the Champions League and stuff like that. Um, hopefully, it, it will. well, well, if they do, because the problem is the coefficient now has changed such that the it'll be more favoured for the teams that perform really well. So it'll be more likely that it'll be an you know Brighton getting into the Champions League. Or who finished fifth this season? Liverpool, sorry, it'd be a Liverpool who would finish in the Champions League and then sort of it would get shunted down one spot, then a Ferenc Varos. That's true, but I can dream. Um and and you've just gotta <laughs> hope that I mean, even to see Brighton in, in the league would be would be fun as well in the Champions League. Um, you know, I think think the more teams, the more opportunities teams get. Hopefully the the more diverse the games are that we see, um, you know, the more fun it will be. Time will tell. Yeah. Time will tell indeed. All that to look forward to. And for those who absolutely abhor this, uh, look forward to this next to come in Champions League season because it's the, it's the last one like that for a while, at least. <laughs> it sure um, is. Speaking about the Champions Leagues, let's talk about a man who's never won it. Harry Kane. <laughs> That's a really, really rude title because that could be a lot of players. But... Uh, yeah, Harry Kane. Um, the story continues. Two bit of news coming out about him since we last recorded uh, over the last two weeks. Um, a second bid of 80 million euros plus add-ons coming in from Bayern. Um, now, we all thought that first bid was going to be rejected, and it was. We weren't certain that Bayern were going to continue turning up the money. Um, but this seems a big improvement, you know, with these add-ons especially, from the initial sort of flat 70 million euro bid. Are they going to continue to go on and reach the valuation? Do we think? Do we think that? I mean, I mean, is there a valuation? We sort of floated this hypothetical 110 million pounds last time again out of nowhere. But do we think that Bayern will indulge this sort of back and forth? And do you think there's a, a world in which they reach the amount that Daniel Levy would be happy to take for Harry Kane? I'm not sure. I w- I've been trying to think back to how how often Tottenham accept transfers which include large. Um, large kind of add-on value to to the fee. I can't think of many. My instinct is that the Spurs tend to prefer cash up front. Um, in terms of... Well, well, yeah, true. What I would say to that, though, is that 
if you were going to have add-ons in a deal for a player, having add-ons in Harry Kane to Bayern Munich is as close as they're going to... Like, if they put... If the entire Gareth Bale fee had been add-ons and they hadn't got any money up front, he won pretty much everything there. So, similarly with Harry Kane, you'd expect him to win at least a couple of Bundesligas, at least a couple of Golden Boots, maybe a Champions League in there. So, even if the add-ons were... Unless they were all, he has to win the Ballon d'Or in his first season. He has to win the Ballon d'Or in his second season. Even then, you might you might get one of them. That's that's true. However, and I'm not saying there's any logic behind this because I think it is a completely different scenario. We have just seen someone like Sadio Mane move and instantly drop off. So you know, and and that was to the exact club that Harry Kane would be going to. That's a fair point. That's a, that's and a I'm not point. saying that's logical because they're very different players. I think Harry Kane's got a lot more left in the tank than Sadio Mane did when he moved, but. I could also understand someone like uh, um, Daniel Levy looking at go. Hmm. Um, you want the cash up front? Well, you know, bird in the hand and all uh, that. It's just definitely better to have up front. Yeah, I, I think um, you know if these add-ons can rise to um, three figures uh, over a hundred million, I think that this is not the worst deal in the world. Especially if Harry Kane is is uh, behind the scenes pushing pretty hard for this. I suppose the big question, and, and maybe sort of the answer to the question, if anything, is that, you know, you talk about Daniel Levy being reluctant to maybe accept add-ons or Tottenham doing that. The thing is, if Harry Kane leaves, you are immediately in a position where you need to buy a replacement striker, and the, the market is very rarely fair on the price of strikers, especially when they know you've just got a big figure. So if Harry Kane goes for 100 millions in total, with some of that being add-ons, all of a sudden, if they want to buy name out of the hat, Randall Kolomowani, they're going to be getting charged 15 million extra. And so Daniel Levy might want that money up front so that he can buy a replacement. That's true. Although the flip side is probably also true, which is that I can imagine add-ons are a little bit of a of a respite from the whole, you know, holding clubs over the, the hot coals because they like, it's like, we know you just have 100 million from selling Jack Grealish. Give us that 100 million from selling Jack Grealish. Um well, a, t- a team that we can go on to talk about a little bit later who uh, who might be having that exact problem <laughs> that I've been seeing this week. But exactly. So, you know, I think um, I think potentially if if Spurs came along and were like, hey, we want Kalamuani, how about 40 million? And they're like, no, we want 80. They're like, we literally don't have 80 yet because Harry Kane's involves a lot of annals. I'm talking about million pounds and euros, but you, you, get, the, you get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it could well help with that a little bit. I don't know. So that in in that sense, maybe you would save a little bit of money on any transfers going on after that. Who's to say? Yeah, it's, a, it's a fair point, and you can you, you yeah, it's it's a fair point. Well, it's not even necessarily the most surprising news about Harry Kane this week, obviously, because the first bid came, and it is surprising that they're, <laughs> their money is increasing in the saga. <laughs> what the, the the second one that Harry Kane's going to be on Hot Ones? Honestly, this is. is a, I don't know if you're a fan of Hot Ones, but I, I definitely. I'm a huge fan of Hot Ones. I don't know if this feels the same to you, but this to me feels like. A real clashing of worlds. It it really is. And I say I'm a huge fan of Hot Ones in as much as I think... I mean, I'm sure there are people who do periodically watch every single episode. But I, I'm a huge fan when it's someone who grabs my interest, which this episode very much qualifies oh, as. I, I will I'm, 100% be watching this. Maybe we should watch it together, I mean, actually. Maybe we should watch There's it together. There's some sort yeah, of drinking I, I, game I, that we can surely build into. I'm incredibly fascinated to... Because, you know, I mean, firstly, the first thing that's going through my head is that Harry Kane is either going to be 
pathetically bad with spies or like low-key really good and it's going to be something that really surprises people and he's like oh yeah like i eat spicy food at home all the time it's actually like uh you know i used to <laughs> people are going to be like what oh, um, i would just find it so funny if he was like the next dj khaled <laughs> just like gave up after two wings but then also the other thing that's quite interesting is that when i think about some of the people that have been on hot like a lot of the time it's musicians or it's movie stars or it's sort of personalities and there's quite a and maybe i'm maybe i'm doing a disservice here but there's quite a varied career and quite a few different projects they've worked on if, if you sort of use the analogy of like a movie star harry kane starred in two movies his entire career the spurs movie or the spurs series i suppose is a better better analogy it's been going on for how, how many seasons of the england series so I, you know there's gonna be a couple of questions about england and spurs but I, I, and I, I knowing sean evans i know he's gonna find a way to make it really compelling so i'm really i'm anticipating what the bulk of the interview is going to be about um so it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe maybe Sean will get the uh, the answer of where he's going out of him. <laughs> Wouldn't be surprised. Uh, although, actually, no, wing, I, wing I, back, I would be surprised because I think they'd be like, you can't air that question. Um, <laughs> Who's going to say that? Harry Kane's people. <laughs> Charlie Kane. Harry, Harry Kane's uncle is going to be there, Cam. I, I, I think it's going to be a really, really interesting... I mean, it, we'll probably find out stuff about Harry Kane that, that we don't know, because that's always the case with, with these interviews. But yeah, I mean, definitely one to uh, set the camera yeah, for us. Yeah, uh, it's very interesting. Exactly. And you're right, because I think the only other sports personality that I've seen do it was, I want to say Shaq. And he obviously has way more about him than just basketball. He's now had like a, a massive amount of, of stuff go on since he retired. Uh, it's... it's- is this sort of, and I hadn't really made this connection until just now, but is this the bizarro world equivalent of Cristiano Ronaldo doing that interview with Piers Morgan? Do you think that anyone at the club has given Harry Kane like permission to do this? Because <laughs> I... normally, because the reason you very rarely see athlete interviews in this sort of format, I mean, there's been some like uh, like Bernardo Silva went on Chicken Shop Date and stuff like that, but that's not that's a that's a very sort of well no that was a proper not that was a that was a um a build up to the the Manchester derby um they had two it, man it, it players was. and two man city players it was but also with the best one in the world and i like chicken shop day it's not so much like an investigative profiling it's kind of Emilia de Moldenberg being like oh look how awkward we both are that's, and that's, that's true what i would say is if anyone listening hasn't watched bernardo silva be interviewed but on chicken shop dates please go watch that it's hilarious he somehow manages to out awkward the most awkward interviewer there there is it's it's brilliant yeah um funny that isn't it how two very critical parts of the media cycle now it all have to do with eating chicken hmm Makes you think. Makes you. Th- I mean, you're a vegan, so you you'd be out of luck on the media circuit. No, Although, well, hot ones is fine. Ricky Gervais did um, he did vegan vegan hot ones. Didn't I think he? loads of people have done veggie or, or vegan ones. They just get cauliflower. Ah, ones to me. I'd be go. fine. Even well, actually, you'd to be, be fair, soft. I think I'd be a little bit more out of luck when it came to the the chicken shops of London. I tend to find those are slim pickings. Uh, I'll just have the chips, please. Kind of kind of uh, occasions. Um, <laughs> but uh not that i'm i'm in danger of or or you perhaps are in danger of being on hot ones or chicken shop dates anytime soon but who knows well you're you're certainly in less danger than me you know if <laughs> if enough if if everyone listening to this this episode shares it with their closest two million friends <laughs> yeah maybe then maybe. uh then maybe maybe we'll get something out of this you know well that's 
that's Harry Kane and Hot Ones. Uh, really excited for that, personally. Both the uh, continuation of this transfer saga and also him scranning some incredibly spicy chicken wings. It's going to be good. Uh, and getting asked some incredibly spicy questions. Um, let's talk about one of the next big changes. Uh, this happened um, in, during last week, uh, I think it was. And that is the news that Arsene Wenger, in his new capacity as sort of the uh, head of football development over at FIFA, is testing another new rule. It's been talked about for a while. It's this new offside uh, rule where instead of it being sort of if your toe's offside, you know, then your entire body is offside. It's the other way around. It's if your toe's onside, then your whole body is offside. So I'm sure loads of people have seen the graphics, but for those who haven't, just it, it's just a flipping over of the offside rule that massively favours the attacker and means that even if you're way beyond someone, as long as there's a little, we'll still have VAR lines, but it'll be this time it'll go. Ah, he's got a he's got a toenail onside because he dragged the foot. Um, what do you think? What are your really top-line views of this rule? Good? Bad? More or less the same? I think it's good. Interesting. Why? I think it will lead to more goals, and I like goals, and I think that it will be less infuriating to watch because hopefully it'll be easier to be clearer on why things are offside and why things aren't. Um, the only thing to mention is that I think it'll probably create a lot of chaos because, you know, you're dropping changes on players, some of which are like over the age of 30 and have been playing their whole lives, especially a lot of like top class defenders been playing their whole lives operating around one principle and to change that is going to be jarring. Oh, I think it's going to lead some absolute calamities. Probably that'll all be really hilarious until they happen to your specific team. But I think, um... Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I mean, you say players who are 30, they're even like a, a fresh off the academy 18-year-old player has been playing most of the time since they were like six. So that's 12 years of learning a certain thing. But at least, at least sudden, that, I think you can, you can, you'll be able to adjust a lot better um, than someone who's who's had like 15 years professional career at the top. Mm, probably. And you will have people's mind who wander, minds who wander during games and there's sort of something else going on. I mean, I find it... One thing I find interesting is you talking there about how it'll lead to more goals, which I think is definitely the common sort of assumption of something like this, because it gives the attacker the margin for error. It means that attackers can take advantage a lot better of things like a high line. But the other argument to that is that maybe we just won't see high lines that often and we won't see offside. Like people will just start defending in a low block much more often because they're like, it's way more risky to come out because they have so much leeway now that that it completely negates the the sort of the benefits of coming out to to step into midfield and to to come out and collect the ball and 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 carry ball forward. Um, so yeah. so it could do the inverse. People could react sort of and, and treat the new changes by being really really defensive. I think there'll be a little bit of that. I think there'll be a little bit of um, you know elastic snapping back into shape at some point, um, and probably broadly it won't lead to any drastic changes in, in amounts of goals scored although as you said that i think it will lead to a couple of funny moments where you'll where you'll we'll just like be talking on people will be talking on match of the day or something like well, like looks like ben godfrey forgot the new rules um or mm, I don't know, i've not yeah. picked him out for any reason but um you know i'm sure there will be times where people may be made to look a little silly uh I, i'm sure i mean you know w- when it comes to for example a smaller team playing man city they already defend pretty deep as it is. And Man City probably will still play high as it is. So if it, if it leads to more counterattacks and more upsets, I'm all for that. Because it will stretch teams a little bit more. 
It also comes in tandem. I think it came in the same week, uh, or maybe the week after the news, that loads of the top leagues, certainly the Premier League, and I think the Italian league as well, are not uh, renewing, or they're not paying for that um, semi-automatic offside system that we saw at the World Cup, where it's sort of like, it's almost like a speed camera, and it sort of does does it really quickly, and there's a role of, a, of an official as well, hence semi-automatic, but apparently it costs like three million a season, so a couple of the top leagues have been like, cannot afford and it's like you can't afford guys and it, it does make the game better yeah well i think as soon as some leagues take it up basically there's there's no risk to to i think waiting one season because it's not going to have a drastic impact the price might go down once has been rolled out in a few leagues um and also they'll get to watch how what it's like and how much value it adds for a season in some of the top top leagues I guess. It's just a strange one that there might be. I mean, I suppose the same for, you know, different cups and different leagues when they don't have VAR. Um, but yeah, it just seemed like such a no-brainer. And then, of course, the powers that be in football have gone, ah, but it is a brainer. I'm the one who has a no-brainer. <laughs> it is funny, isn't it? Sometimes, you know, when you watch, like, an international competition and, and they've got all these crazy new technologies and then you go back to watching your domestic football and you're like, oh, this is just worse. I mean, what I will say is that it feels nice that we're trending in a in a general direction of change. I think football fans, often myself included, can be quite traditionalist and be a bit like, oh, this is the beautiful game. How dare you come in here and hammer it up? But I think that VAR has had its ups and its downs, mostly in the Premier League. But I think that's because of reasons other than the concept. I think the concept is perfectly fine. It's the execution that's been really, really poor. And the, the semi-automatic offside rule looked really good in the World Cup. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad that this sort of new offside rule is being tested. I'm always a fan when I hear of these new sort of different, um, like disciplinary cards being tested, like a, like a blue card or a green card or something. So I think that's quite interesting as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, keep it going. Uh, when stuff looks like it works, keep it. When stuff looks like it doesn't, trash it. Um, knowing FIFA, they'll do things the other way around, but what can we do? Oh yeah, I mean, I fully look forward to criticising it along with everyone else as the season starts. Um, (laughs) The other thing I wanted to mention was, I'm pretty sure this was like, I think the first time we ever heard about this was like Arsene Wenger talking about it a couple of years ago. Is he? It was, but is he the change maker? It it is. Yeah, he is. But that, but that's it's because he's gone into FIFA as their new global. He's like not as new. He's been there since three, four, five years now. He's the head. I think his title is something like the head of global football development. So a lot of these are his brainchilds because he basically has this vision for how he, the game continues to evolve and he comes up with these kooky ideas and they test them and either run with them or not. So so yeah, it, it's something he said years and years ago and now he's trying to implement it. The gift that keeps on giving, Arsene Wenger. Still in our hearts mm. and in our minds. I can't wait for him to come out in like two years ago. Any club that has a cannon on its badge starts the season with 25 more points. <laughs> I can't wait for him to be Crystal Palace manager in five years' time. <laughs> they're the only team that would bully him into doing it let's go to a little they're bit still, of they're still just trying to find dirt on him <laughs> still trying to, let's get a bit of trying to find out more from his, his ex-wife <laughs> uh, uses trivia I was doing a little bit of uh, not even research just sort of you know, looking around at some interesting old football history um, and I was reading not for the first time the all-time English football top flight table uh, so that's from the seasons all the way back in 1888-89 uh, to the okay. 2022-23 season just gone 
Um, now, what many may know, because the fans of this club will happily tell you, is that the team that have accrued the most points over all of the English top flight football that's ever been played is Liverpool, their first place. Um, but they are not the team, curiously enough, that has scored the most goals. That happens to be their deathly rivals Everton, who sit in third place in the all-time uh, points table, below Arsenal, who are in second and above Manchester United in fourth, but have actually scored 7,195 goals across all of these seasons. However, what makes this even more interesting is that Liverpool are not that far behind, having scored themselves 7,190. It's a safe bet to assume that Liverpool will score more than five goals more than Everton that season and will then become not only the top points holders, but also the top goal scorers. Wow, and that'll be a fun moment for them, I'm sure, taking it off Everton. Yeah, well, exactly. It's uh, it's just five more goals. So who knows when in the season that'll happen, but but at that point it'll happen. It's interesting to note that Arsenal, who are in second place, are a fair bit behind Everton and by proxy Liverpool, uh, with 60 points behind, um, sorry, 70 points behind Everton and 65 points behind Liverpool. Um, so probably won't happen for them anytime soon. But if Liverpool continue their decline and Arsenal continue their ascent... And you mean goals? Uh, 60 goals, goals. and 65 goals. So Everton are on 7,195 7, goals. Yeah, yeah. No, Five good. behind them are Liverpool on 7,190. And six, behind them are Arsenal. Six, 65 behind them on 7,125 are Arsenal. Got it. Got it, got it, got it. And then there's a big drop-off to uh, Aston Villa, who are on 6,807. And United are actually fifth. Uh, despite being in the, they were despite being fourth. So, yeah, an interesting, uh, an interesting sort of couple of stats there. Actually, crazy now that I look at it. You know, who the fifth team is for goal scored. It's Man City. So wow. For all those that say they have no history, they've uh, they've scored a lot of goals. Either that, so, or they've just been absolutely blistering it for the last ten years. Actually, now that I look at this, this is on myfootballfacts.db or dot ua ua. <laughs> what's what's the Abu Dhabi web address? AD. <laughs> You've fallen bowels and propaganda. <laughs> this is uh, this is citizens dot com. Check check back in one month and Chelsea will be top. <laughs> um, what have you got for me this week? I've got uh, I've got a stat that I came across, and it's also about goal scored that blew my mind and I'm excited to tell you about it. I want to hear your reaction in person. Um, it's around uh, one of the the, the greats, uh, one of the GOAT strikers um, to ever do it, Hugo Sanchez, um, who in his Real Madrid days in the 1989-1990 season, he scored 38 league goals in La Liga. Might sound impressive, might not sound like anything particularly special, what if I told you, Cam, that every single one of those 38 goals was a first-touch finish? Good Lord, that's insane. 38 what, what goals he, in the season, just, just... all one touches. I mean, you know what they would say in uh, in this day, in the modern climate, one in, the, in, the, in the social media era. <laughs> one, one tri- no, they'd say, tap-in merchant. <laughs> but, but they weren't. They weren't. They, he was banging them. Good Lord. Well, that's even more impressive. He was first time hitting them. He wasn't even sort of like getting a couple of touches and he wasn't just tapping them at the back. But I mean, tapping them at the back post is uh, how Haaland scored a lot of his goals uh, this season and they were still still great goals. They all count. Take a look. Take a look at the highlights. They are not all tap-ins. Uh, yeah, 
crazy. I love the idea that he maybe realised like a few months in that he'd only scored one touch goals or someone told him and he was like, can I keep doing this and still, still win like the golden boot? That's really funny. That's really quite interesting. Um, well, surely, let's go next surely into... Surely a stat that will never be beaten or replicated. Surely not. Um, let's go next into another big change. Um, Hannah Dingley is a name that some may be familiar and some mm. may not be, but she is an historic name indeed because this week she has become the first uh, and only woman ever. Uh, well, not only woman, first woman ever. <laughs> Pro- probably not only woman ever, uh, but you know what football can be like. Um, but she's the first ever woman and only woman currently in charge of a professional men's team in English football uh, when she took over from Duncan Ferguson at Forest Green Rovers. Uh, a really interesting and sort of historic thing. She's the interim manager for the time being, um, but she's, you know, very well qualified for the job. She's been with their academy for about four years. Uh, and it's a, it's a really interesting conversation starter that has sort of asked the question as to, why there aren't more female coaches in men's football. I mean, we've certainly seen with, you know, most notably someone like Emma Hayes, that there are really, really competent, you know, women tacticians who understand the men's game at the top, top level. Um, (laughs) And maybe this will be... Well, no, I mean, in in as much as the argument has often been, oh, you know, the women's game and the men's game are different, ergo, you know, if you're a a women's coach... I don't think anyone actually believes that. (laughs) I mean, a, a lot of people do to disparage people. But then you know, there was a really good example back at the Euros when you had Emma Hayes analysing the men's game and she was doing better than all the male pundits. So hopefully this will open up the door for, uh, for you know, more female coaches. And, you know, certainly there, uh, there are a lot of clubs looking for, for new coaches at any given times who would absolutely happily have uh, a Serena Weigman instead of uh, whoever they've got in charge of their club. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it's been a closed door for long enough. Um, and I think that, the game is changing. We've seen that, you know, a couple of players are starting to come out as well. I think the 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 culture, the the men's club culture is slowly shifting. Very slowly shifting. But it is yeah, shifting. But yeah, very slowly for um, sure. I mean, but yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's interesting with Hannah Dingley because she, unlike someone like Emma Hayes, I mean, I, I just use that as one example, but the, the big comparison is she has always worked in uh, men's coaching. So, or she's always had one hand. She's also managed um, the the Lincoln Ladies, I think, initially. Um, but she's also worked throughout men's football for about twenty odd years. So she's not made the transition. Not to say I think someone couldn't, um, but that's sort of a, a key distinction. Sure, 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 sure. Well, um, there is one other um, that was touted in the article that I read, which was Lydia Bedford, um, who uh, I think in June was announced as the. Um, the manager of Brentford's under-18s. Um, and she started, um, I think, as Leicester women's uh, manager. Um, and she's not yet, um, you know, a, a full flight, um, first flight, top flight uh, manager of a men's side. But um, that, again, is a rung of the ladder. And that, again, um, was change that happened, you know, this summer. So, you know, it, it's progress. It is happening. Um, again, It'll be a while yet, but um, we hope that um, these front runners will be valuable additions and that they can help pave the way um, as quickly as possible for more people to take them place. Because it's not competitive, um, you know, it's not competitive to only be drawing from one half of a potential pool. Um, it's not as exciting. It's not as vibrant. You're not going to get as many ideas in the game um, to be able to add completely new perspectives on on football is exciting. 
um, and should be embraced. So any sort of diversity that we can get, there's so much more diversity that could be done across management, across coaching, um, across top flight football um, that uh, needs to happen. Um, and yeah, long may it continue. Well, I mean, yeah, just as an England fact, look what happened when we sat Phil Neville and hired Serena Vakeman. We immediately won something for the first time ever. Yeah, exactly. And it felt like such a, such like a just like, oh, yeah, give Neville the job. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to bring him in in the first place. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. And obviously, um, you know, when it came to that, probably I could imagine very easily that, that women footballers would respond much better to a female manager. Um, and that's not to say that that male footballers shouldn't respond well as well. Um, it's just it's just culture shift, isn't it? Um, and that takes time. Yeah, no, you're all right. Well, interesting one to watch um, and, you know, see if it encourages more and more teams to, you know, open up that side of it to, to applications. It'll be interesting to see if she does really, really well, how quickly that changes the conversation. <laughs> she starts absolutely stonking with Forest Green Rovers. How many people are like, hmm. Um, yeah. Let's move on, though. I want to ask a question to you. Uh, it's a little bit of a conceptual question, much like when I asked you the other day if this concept of naming a price was brand new. And it's, it's a similar topic area. Um, so I don't expect you to have a definitive answer with stats and uh, arguments, especially because I only texted you about this this afternoon. Okay, um, sure, sure. sure. <laughs> has this concept of relegated teams being ripe for plunder stopped being true? We always talk about, and we have talked about in recent weeks, you know, someone like Leicester going down and we go, oh, they're going to have their bones picked clean before you know it. This player's going to go and that player's going to go and they can't charge a plum fee because all of these players are going to want to leave. But we've seen a couple of key examples of relegated teams that have top players who've just, just come out of the Premier League that other teams are then in for, and they're still asking for really big sums. So an example of a team that's doing this is Southampton. You think a team that finished twentieth of all places wouldn't really have a leg to stand on, but they've allegedly sort of had a valuation of fifty million for Romeo Lavia, and for thirty-five million uh, for James Ward Prowse, who actually kind of links back to the West Ham thing you mentioned. Oh, you mentioned Jack Grealish. I alluded to West Ham. Um, sure, it's it's kind of interesting how, and yes, the money in general has gone up, but it's it's funny to think that. This time, even last season, you saw someone like Richarlison, who was one of Everton's best players, go for sixty million, and everyone agreed that was quite a lot of money. Or Gabriel Jesus go to to Arsenal for forty five million. He wasn't one of the City's best players, but still decent amount of money. And now Southampton can ask for fifty million for a player they signed one season ago, and it's had a very good season, but it's still quite untested. I think there's even talk of um, Newcastle looking at Valentino Livramento and have slightly been put off by like a really big valuation for a player that was injured for a lot of last season, and is at a team that's just gone down. Um, so is Southampton just sort of really sort of bullish about keeping their players? Are they good at selling them the dream and keeping them on contract? Or is this concept of relegated teams, you know, suddenly becoming bargain buckets no longer true? I think I think it's hard to draw lines in the sand about, you know, is this no longer the case? Because I think relegated teams are completely different every year. And I think that this year especially, there are a lot of good players in those sides. But if you look at, you know, the last couple of years, what was it? What was it the year before last? Burnley, Watford and Norwich? Mm. Not many of those players, uh, you know, were, were crying out to be picked up by, by top teams. The, the year before that, Fulham, West Brom and Sheffield. Again, not not a lot of joy sparked um, 
in terms of excitement from those sides. Um, this year we've got, you know, Leicester, which feels like almost, um, you know, an unprecedented like level of of ability to try and like yoink players, um, and and Southampton as well have a lot of very exciting young players. I think one thing I would maybe say is that I think there's there's potentially been a slight culture shift from uh, com- competitive teams that are, are yo-yoing where they're trying less to pick up your your Tom Hoddlestons and your Gary Cahills and they're trying more to develop young players and bring them through from academies and pick up young, exciting players uh, across England and abroad. They're, they're broadening their scouting networks. So I think, I think that there is potentially a bit of a shift in the last couple of years, definitely in the last year or two, um, where I feel like the sides that are lower down all have a couple of quite exciting um, young, potentially English players um, that all look quite enticing for for those top clubs and even for those those middle clubs. Um, so I think that's maybe what I would say it is different. And then when it comes to um, people getting relegated and, and bones getting picked, it really depends on what the contract situations are. And I think um, probably clubs have seen enough enough other clubs be screwed over by not having good things in contracts. Um, I can't remember the top of my head. You might remember there was a, a situation a couple of years ago where a bunch of players just walked out of a club because they all had um, clauses in their contracts that basically said that if we get relegated, we can leave for pennies. Mm. I can't remember. Fulham, maybe. I can't was remember that? if it was Fulham or if it was someone like Bournemouth when they la- when they last went down, um, or maybe even if it was like QPR before that. I-, I don't remember off the top of my head. I remember there's there's always a couple, but actually, I hadn't, it's a good point you make because you sort of mentioned how because of the clubs that went down, they have a better class of player, which I, I do agree with. Um, and Actually, funnily enough, you mentioned Southampton buying young players. It's a complete tangent, but did you know that Southampton's director of football used to be the academy director at Man, Man City? And that's why they keep buying loads of young Man City players. Is um, that but, so? I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so all, all, anyway, tangent. I think it's true, A, that the teams are maybe a little bit better than the, the ones that tend to go down in terms of quality. What is also true is it might be the case, and I haven't got all these contracts in front of me, but if you are a player who signs for a Norwich or a Watford or the, the teams that you normally are like, they come up and you go, yeah, they might go back down, oh, especially if they have just come up, there's probably quite likely to be a relegation clause in there, whereas it's entirely likely that a player who signed for Southampton or for Leicester is like, I'm not even considering that, and they've not put it in the contract because they're maybe not considering either, and why would you offer to do it? So... If you were signing for Leicester at the start of last season, would you expect to see a relegation clause in there? Would you be surprised? I don't think it's a uniform thing by by any account. With Leicester, probably not. But they probably do have, as in, as in, would would clubs be looking to have contracts that said that they couldn't move or that they could move or just anything related to relegation? They'll they'll have had some stuff. Uh, well, I mean, like, I, again, I'm not really sure where did Southampton finish the season before last maybe Southampton but Leicester because a lot it's very common I think the relegation thing is just normally built into contracts regardless but then would they have them like a like a city first team player contract I, th- I think you probably, probably. wouldn't have them Pro- probably um, it'd be like it, and that's probably why you know the the number for someone like James Madison is what like 40 million and he's got a year left on his contract um which feels like well, that, well that's why it's interesting like that's yeah, about right. I was gonna, 
Um, so I imagine that they don't have um, specific relegation contracts, clauses in contracts. I think that's, quite, I think that's well, yeah, but I think that's quite expensive. Um, oh, sorry, you mean taking into account he has one year left? Yeah, exactly. That's what if Leicester had stayed up, that's what you'd have expected him to go for. But Leicester have gone down, and it's still around the same amount. So perhaps there is no no clause in terms of you know, whether they go down, they'll be allowed to leave for this much. I wonder if that then also means about the wages. I hadn't really thought about that, but it'll be interesting to see if that happens because if you're a championship team and you're paying Premier League wages across the board, you're going to be in trouble pretty quickly. Well, you just you just would... It's a gamble, isn't it? Um, you'd expect to try and go up next season um, and hope that if you keep paying your players the same amount um, and keep behaving like a Premier League club, then you can get to become a Premier League then- club again quicker. Yeah, maybe in the short term. But then again, maybe they do have that. Otherwise, they would be selling off these players at cheap prices. I don't know. It's uh, it's a really interesting thing that I've sort of... I was looking at it this year and I was like, hmm, this isn't happening the way that we normally think it happens. Because Spurs went straight in for Le- at Leicester. They had like a double swoop. Uh, I think it was like a double swoop for Madison and Barnes for £25 million. And Leicester were like, what? And that used to be the kind of thing you would do. You would go to a relegated club and you would go, well, you're going to be having to pay all these wages or you've got a relegation clause that reduces their wages, but they're going to try and force a move out as a result of Give that. Give me your players. Give them to us now. Yeah. And that didn't see, they've sort of rebuffed that and then Spurs have come back with 40 million just for Madison. Yeah. Um, interesting. It's a changing landscape. I agree with you there. Um, but I don't know if there's necessarily any sort of any sort of rhyme or rhythm in the chaos yet. Uh, that, that we can pick out and I think that's no, probably it, it's we can we can look at general shifts if we take a step back but I think year-on-year shifts are, are too um are too different to really draw any sort of conclusions yeah it will be I mean what's interesting is the one club who maybe haven't adhered to this who have been relegated is Leeds I saw a rumor today that Everton are looking to sign Willie Nonto for twenty-two million pounds, and that's maybe sort of a, a bit advanced, which I would suggest is quite a good fee for a player who is really young and really, really talented. And in other years, Leeds might go. We want forty million for him. Yeah, could well be. Like, 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 no, like, like Willie Nonto, I would suggest had every bit as impressive, if not perhaps slightly more impressive than Romeo Lavia. I think Lavia's a better player, but I think maybe it's easy to be a bit more flashy. And in, in Willie, I mean, I think they're both really good players. Is essentially what I mean. But one is going for less than half the price of the other. Mm. I don't think there's that much difference. But that's also just football, isn't it? Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, the the other factor might be that you might, as a you know director of football or an owner or a, or a manager, look at some of the teams that have gone up and go, yeah, we're a stronger team than them. So by the transitive properties and, and the, you know, the bottom of the Premier League and the top of the Championship, that gap goes smaller and smaller every year. So... Yeah, interesting to see what happens next season if sort of everything starts to you know burn at Leicester when none of the players are getting paid because they're still on like 120k a week and Leicester like we cannot afford that. It's it's a, it's a worrying situation for any for any team like Leicester that get relegated. Um, you wonder if it's either going to be up or down again um, fairly soon afterwards. Um, but yeah, time will tell. Good luck to Leicester though. Um, I'm excited to watch them in the Championship. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting, yeah. Um, next, let's round up. Uh, got a couple, of, you know, few more things here, but maybe time for one quick more. Um, Mason Mount uh, confirmed to Manchester United. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the sale, about the fit, about how both mm. United and Chelsea fans uh, will be feeling right now, about sort of what this means. I just want to start off, though, by going that we've we've given Chelsea a lot of paddling over the last 12 months. 
of their sort of business strategy. Naughty, naughty Chelsea and, kind of thing, you mean? Uh, uh, no, not even naughty, naughty Chelsea. Just like, Chelsea, what are you doing? What You can't spend 400 million on that guy. He's never played a game of professional football before. You saw him kicking a ball outside the training ground. Um, and we've been sort of going, oh, Chelsea, you've got more money than cents. What I will say... Got to give Chelsea their plaudits for generating 130 or 125 million from the sale of two players in Hammerson Mounts that underperformed more weeks than they performed last season and and played pretty key parts in Chelsea finishing 12th. They seem to have done pretty well from it. Um, I think it's it's an interesting one about you know how how often or how much sorry do um, players retain their value? How much do they have to show it? You know. To, to keep at least some of their um you know the their sheen from from what they used to have when they were younger um i think havertz has been just so badly used at chelsea that he's definitely got some latent potential that's exciting and i think mount probably also is is flexible enough and and moldable enough to be quite an exciting prospect for someone like ten hag who loves to get his his teeth stuck into like young players and um and like twist them around and is also looking to build something different and new in Manchester United's midfield. I don't hate Man uh, Mount to, to Man U as a signing, as an England fan. I think it might well get quite a lot of good out of him. Um, I think he could well become a little bit more of that player that I think Man U were hoping Christian Eriksen could be. Um, but I think Christian Eriksen's maybe a little bit too old or whatever to be um so i think this makes a little bit of sense despite it being i guess from the outset quite a strange move all around I mean, mason Mount is just one of those players isn't he he's one of, i mean so is kai habits a little bit but he's one of those players that managers seem to love and fans sometimes you watch him and you go Okay, this guy's pretty good and then a lot of the time you watch him and you go is he actually um, what does he do and and he's yeah, and and he's sort of he's he's very inconsistent. He he doesn't sort of post amazing numbers on you know open play assists or of goal scoring. He shifts around to a lot of different positions, so he's been used as sort of like an eight, as a ten, as a winger. No one's a hundred percent sure what his best position is, but then you could make the case that that is just a symptom of being at Chelsea for the last few years. And again, you could say the same for Habits that it's not been the most conducive environment for sort of a young developing footballer to play his best football and it'll be interesting to see I mean I've made the case that's also been true of a lot of players at Manchester United so perhaps for for Mason Mount this wasn't the best move Uh, but maybe it was and it'll be interesting to see what he looks like next season whether it is the fact that he is just a really inconsistent player and it's just he flips a coin when he wakes up and if it's heads he plays a blind or if it's tails he has a shocker Um, or if there is a bit of consistency in there and if Eric Ten Hag can get that out of him I'm not sure I think um, one thing I would say about Mason Mount is um, I think he, I mean, like at one point he was a really exciting player. Um, when he first exploded under Frank Lampard in Frank Lampard's first year, when they had what Tammy Abraham doing bits, Fakara Tomori looking great, Mason Mount um, looking great as well. Mason Mount was really lively, really exciting as a player. And I think uh, he probably was, call me crazy, but I think, didn't he get over 10 goals and assists in last year's Premier League. Mm, that might be right. I think that could be I, right. I think that is yeah, true. Yeah. And he he was 23 at the time. And I think you'd have to look quite a way back to see 
a player that young as an English attacking midfielder post those numbers. Um, I think the only other one that I could think of at the top of my head was maybe someone like Deli Ali. And if you if you looked at Deli Ali and you knew that he had guaranteed work rate and effort like Mason Mount does, I think you'd take a punt on that, wouldn't you? I, th- I think you definitely would take a punt on it on him, but the fact that he's been really inconsistent suggests that because Deli Ali was already always a really talented player, but I think he just he maybe fell out of love with the game or or something like that. But he, he sort of had a, a, a sort of tapering off, and Mason Mount had. Yeah, 11 goals last season, but he had three this season. So it's, it's, a, it's a big drop-off. He's gone from sort of impressive numbers to really quite woeful. But Chelsea had a terrible season. The whole team had a terrible season. The whole culture shifted. You know, they had four managers. It was terrible. Mm, it's, it's, it's a good question, yeah. It, it's the sort of the eternal yeah, football just question. Just one year no, ago, no one he's really knows to answer, like over 10 goals and over 10 assists. Yeah, no, it's, it's 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 a fair point. It's definitely why people like him. It's why he sort of gets games for England, and it's why he's gone for a sixty million pound fee. It just seems strange that, like with both of these players, Chelsea have been very willing to sell, and it's always like if someone's willing you to sell you something, <laughs> really. I guess they've sort of had a bit of a back and forth in Manchester United, but yeah, it, it it seems he's gone there quite quickly for a for a player who's been there since how old? Six, seven. I don't know. Maybe it'll be a good signing. Yeah. I, I don't really no, know. No, you're right. He, he's, I'm interested to see. You're right. But I think also, you know, Chelsea are selling anything that they can. Um, you know, and if they can sell someone like Mason Mount, who is potentially underperforming, and they can't guarantee that they'll be able to create an environment where players like Mason Mount can, can thrive, then when someone comes along with an offer that you think is good value for money, it's probably good. probably good sense to take it. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, what do you think about the fact that he's picked up the number seven for United? Well, I've heard that uh, <laughs> I've heard that Garnacho's brother isn't very happy with him about it. Um, apparently, oh, Gar- Garnacho. Honestly, I'll I'll nail my flag to this mask. I reckon Garnacho is one of those players who is really talented, but he just seemed to have like really. It, well, firstly, he seems to already think he's he's a hot shot, and secondly, he seems to have like quite gobby family, and I can see those being the things that slightly drag him down and he'll probably still be a good player but he'll be in there I remember like Aubameyang during the the twilight years at Arsenal his brother was always chipping in and it can't be good for your career to have that kind of those sort of people around you no no I'm sure it can't uh hey I say say it can't be good for your career Aubameyang still had a great career but maybe was maybe didn't reach the full heights that he could have um and, and I suspect um, based on, I mean, Garnacho's brother's probably like 20 or something, you might grow out of it. But um, that's, that's that's my early take. I'll see you in episode 806 to see if I'm right when he's retired. <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, I, I don't I don't really care about which which number he takes. Um, I think it's probably, Rupert, it's probably... you know that shirt numbers matter immensely. Well, it's probably quite nice, just thinking out loud, that the number seven shirt wasn't taken by another winger. Mm. Yeah, yeah, just just because so. well, it's uh, not it's not as much of a direct like for like you're not going to get the comparisons. Someone like Garnacho took the number seven. I could see that really hanging over his head, um, in low points. And I don't think Garnacho is a player that that won't have low points, um, regardless of whether or not we think he's going to make it in football. Yeah, he's still an inconsistent young player. Um, so I think you know if Mount wants the shirt. It's a good number. Um, it can really play in any position. Um, you know, you had from 
players like Ramirez back in the day um, to, you know, someone like N'Golo Kante um, at Chelsea to someone like Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, you know, it, it really is a shirt that you can you can take across the midfield um, and and up the wings. R- Ramirez was fine to wear seven. N'Golo Kante wearing it was a disgrace, by the way. <laughs> Why? <laughs> It's it just it's not a it's not a vibe fit. I don't think you necessarily need to be a winger or or even sort of like uh, I, I don't think a centre forward should be a seven. Really, Ramirez wasn't um, a winger. He got put no, no, on no, the wing I, sometimes. I, he was a defensive midfielder. I, no, I, no, I know, but this is this is what I'm saying. I think it's a vibe thing because although they played in similar positions, Ramirez was so much more of like a surging from deep, scoring the occasional banger defensive kind of midfielder, whereas N'Golo Kante, a better player, but not that same kind of guy. So Ramirez, fine. N'Golo Kante. No, nah, that's not right. Angelo right, Kante mate. loves to wear to 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 bang goals in. He does not. He, he he's, it. It's his favorite thing. Do you ever see it's him celebrating? He's so happy all the time. He's so happy about everything. <laughs> you could kick him in the ribs and he'd be smiling. <laughs> I think um, you're right. Though. I think it is typically used for 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 midfielders that will surge forwards. Someone like John McGinn. Um, it's a good number seven uh, type. Yeah, type, that's all right. Type player, but also you know, Mason Mount likes to score goals, doesn't he? And, I don't, I don't, and I don't Cameron, vibe, the the role that Christian Eriksen played was fairly flat in midfield, but was also a little bit of a surgy forwardy kind of guy. So mm. I, I would not be surprised if if Ten Hag gets Mount uh, to remember where the goal is at least a little bit, at least some of the time, and maybe he starts scoring somewhere between five and ten goals per season. Maybe even he gets better than that. Um, and if he, I'll, if I'll he can one score ten goals in the season, will you publicly uh, recognise that you think he deserves to have the number seven shirt, or, or do you think it needs to be more goals than that? If he sco- if he if he plays like next to Casemiro and he scores ten goals from there, he absolutely deserves to wear the number seven shirt. That's a, that's a hilarious, yeah, of course. For the record, um, yeah, for the record. Uh, okay, um, and we're, we're saying across all competitions. No, no, no. In yeah, league, yeah, no, no. Obviously. Too late. We agreed. We agreed. <laughs> What I will say is Casemiro has got he's gonna have so much like good good player. Well, one's definitely a good player, one jury's out as we just discussed, but Casemiro's gonna be having to make like record numbers of ball recoveries with Bruno <laughs> Fernandes and Mason Mount is in midfield. Mason Mount's a little just, terrier in midfield. He runs around loads. Yeah, yeah, but he gives it away. He does. He does sometimes. That's fair. Gives it away like that. Let's uh round up final last quick uh bullet point thing. Something that happened today. Spurs finally confirmed the signing of Manuel Solomon, uh, who of course uh did really well for Fulham last season after going on a I can't remember exactly what it was, it was either a loan or sort of like there was some sort of deal where he was off from, from Shakhtar Donetsk, but it wasn't the sort of full signing mm. because he's now gone to Spurs on this deal. You might remember that FIFA sort of issued that that ruling yep. that players who played in Ukraine, who were non-Ukrainian, could sort of cancel their contracts. Um, Spurs have signed Manuel Solomon permanently as a result of this. Um, and Shakhtar Donetsk, as I understand it, are going to be pursuing legal action because they're basically of the mind that they're a compensation, um, that this is sort of, they've had an asset taken off their hands. It's a really sticky situation that I don't think that there's necessarily a right side to because, uh, I mean, you know, we've already I talked about how FIFA have sort of had, FIFA have had an inelegant situation, but in terms of Spurs, the player, and Shakhtar Donetsk, I don't know that any one of those three is specifically in the wrong, and that's who the legal sort of proceedings is probably going to be between um i don't know it's so. it's easy to say that you would but surely surely a club could go look Shakhtar, we recognize you're war torn and this is thrust upon you it's probably not the amount that you'd like but like 
what if we gave you 20 million for him? What if we gave you 10 million for him? That kind of thing. Uh, I think... Are people really going to do that in business? Just hand out 10 million? But it's not just handing out 10 million. It's also... Firstly, from the perspective, from from the from the cold clinical financial eyes of Spurs's sort of bean counters, he's a free agent. So why would they then like that's just giving that is giving ten million to Shatter? Because you run, not that I necessarily agree with that in the big picture. You run the risk of getting sued, which is what's going to happen. It's not necessarily completely like they'll have waited up. But 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 I do I do agree with that. I think it'll be interesting to see if that affects. But like if if you're Spurs and you go right, we're going to take this player. We could either give Shakhtar five million for him, and and just like call it quits, or potentially get sued for much more than that. It's a gamble. It's a risk you take, um, as you said. And so it's not cut and dry. As like obviously they wouldn't do that because they don't want anything that's kind and and joyous in football to to live. Um, although I do think when you say they, do you mean, do you mean Spurs or is that is that just sort of like a vague they? I think that's just football. I think that's just football. How many? I I don't know how many clubs. Um, would potentially, out of the kindness of their hearts, um, be looking to to pay. I mean, the other, the obvious example I think that we've we've talked about in the past is that um, that player who died on the way from leaving Nantes to Cardiff. Maybe you want to say Emiliano. Yeah, it was Emiliano Salah. Who actually, funnily enough, uh, Cardiff were ordered this week. So funny you raise it to pay the transfer fee in full. So that that there you that go. Finally, settled. Um, perfect example. Um, so, mm. you know, it's not without its risks. Um, and I think it's, it's a gamble, isn't it? Um, you know, pay them a couple of mil, maybe they're happy. Maybe they don't sue. Who knows? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a good point. And, and based on that, um, you know, that, that comparison, Cardiff didn't exactly have the best season last year, uh, in the championship, uh, in as much as they just about stayed up, but had a really, really torrid season. So maybe it was the suit weighing heavily on their mind. Maybe it'll weigh heavily on Spurs' mind. Who knows? Who's to say? Um, I don't know if it, like, it might be difficult for the player to sort of settle in if that's something that he's, he's constantly having to keep an eye on. But yeah, it could work out very well for Spurs and Manuel Solomon. He's definitely a talented player and he was he was good for the sort of little cameo he had for Fulham. Um, sure. But yeah, an, in- an interesting one we'll watch evolve. It is an interesting one. I, I personally think it's... I think anyone that's taking advantage of of Ukraine at this point is pretty uh, pretty gutless um, but you know so it is well that's a great place to end it you've called Spurs gutless uh, <laughs> that's it for this any week any club uh, Rupert uh, any club that's not <laughs> Rupert uh, I'll talk to, to you that's not great to talk to you as right always <laughs> it does well great to talk to you as always Cam thank you very much thank you to everyone for listening we'll catch you next week cheers guys bye Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amschel.